1: We can't continue to allow China to rape our country and that's what they're doing. It's the greatest theft in the history of the world. That's Donald Trump speaking at a rally almost a year ago. His message that China stole American jobs by taking away factories and using unfair trade practices resonated so well that it helped deliver a surprise election victory. In fact, China has provided a lifeline to manufacturing in some of America's hardest-hit cities. Take Moraine, Ohio, where a Chinese company took over a closed General Motors plant and turned it into a center for windshield glass. As Trump prepares this week for his first-ever meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping, we're taking a closer look today at the relationship between the world's two largest economies. The truth is that it's a lot more complicated than you might suspect. Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman. Joining me as a guest co-host is my colleague, Andrew Maietta, a Bloomberg reporter here in Washington who covers international economics and trade. We'll also speak with a local official in Moraine who helped bring in the Chinese investment. Then we'll talk with an economics professor in Ohio to give us some more perspective. Uh, But first, Andrew, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Andrew, you visited this plant, the Fuyao Glass Factory, last year and wrote about it. What did you find there?
2: It was really interesting. Uh, as you mentioned, that plant uh, had previously been empty for empty for several years. It was previously a GM plant that produced uh, Chevy Trailblazers, I believe. Uh, but uh, it was uh, closed uh, in GM's uh, restructuring following the financial crisis. And a Chinese company called Fuyao Glass came in and bought that facility and uh, has since been ramping up hiring. They make uh, uh, car windshields there. Um, And virtually everyone that I talked to in town thought it was a good thing. I mean, what a lot of people said was, uh, you know, those jobs don't pay quite as well as the jobs at GM, but it's better than an empty plant. That was the kind of overwhelming message that I got from people. And you know, I think it's an interesting uh, illustration of uh, the complexities of Chinese investment in uh, the US. I mean, as on one hand you have uh uh, politicians on campaign trails uh, kind of vilifying Chinese investment. On the other hand, you have uh, uh, places like Moraine, Ohio, looking for capital, looking for investors in uh, in their economies.
1: Yeah, it really was a contrast when we were hearing all this rhetoric during the campaign season, not just from Trump, but you know, also from some of it from the Democratic side that uh, you know critical of China and the, and the need to level the playing field, bring manufacturing jobs back, and so forth. Uh, well. Let's find out more from somebody who's been closely involved in this issue. Uh, Michael Davis, Director of Economic Development for the city of Moraine, is joining us on the phone now. Mike, thanks for being with us today.
3: Uh, You're welcome. I'm happy to join in.
1: Mike, can you tell us a little bit first about the history of manufacturing in your area and and what's happened to it over the past 20, 30 years, kind of setting the, the scene for us?
3: Sure. Uh we, we have always um had kind of a significant presence in manufacturing. Uh, in some respects you could have called us a, a GM town. We are a entering suburb of Dayton, Ohio. And uh at one time, uh in the seventies and eighties, GM was probably employing when you include their suppliers, upwards of twenty thousand people in the city. Um as years went by and, and various consolidations and um, everything as we pushed into the 2000s, GM was still employing about 4,000 people, and uh, it was a very prevalent operation, uh, manufact- manufacturing operation in our community. And then in 2009 is when we were hit with the, uh, the closure of the plant. Um, leading to that at the time of their closure, they were building I believe, as referenced, the uh, Chevy Trailblazer, the GMC Envoy, um, the Saab 9X, and a couple other sport utility vehicles.
1: And so how did the deal with Fuyao then come about after the, the closure, and how did, how did you help make that happen?
3: When when some of the economic downturn happened, you could kind of say that Moraine was the microcosm of the national economy. We. Um, really, all you had to do was take a look at Moraine and see what was going on across the entire country. And so, the first thing that we did is we really we went out to try to understand maybe what other communities across the country had done or had experienced when they had a large manufacturer close. And really, what we did is we said, okay, we have a talented workforce. We have over four million square feet of existing manufacturing space. Um, you know, instead of harping on these as negatives, let's turn around and use these as resources and positives to say, you know, this is why you need to come here. We we have the skill labor already in place and uh, we've got space that um, is located in good proximity on Interstate 75 and reasonable in cost and had received a lot of updates over the years as General Motors continued to invest money into the facility, so it was in relatively good shape. Um, Based upon that, we just continued to try to increase the visibility, working with the state of Ohio, and uh, we had finally, in 2013, had received kind of a state uh, site selection inquiry for a project called Project Southbound, and that's really what led to uh, the initial communication and the startup and trying to attract what would ultimately be Fuyao
1: and did you have were there incentives involved that either moraine or your county or the state provided
3: uh i all this was definitely a collaborative effort a lot of partnership went into this and uh there there were incentives at the state level and then we had to you, you know initially i think there was about 5 to 7 states who were competing for this effort and there was more than one site even in the state of ohio so the state incentives were based on those final two sites in Ohio and we were still competing against Michigan as well and uh, ultimately Montgomery County the city of Moraine had to step in and provide additional assistance to kind of separate ourselves out from the other competing site that was that was in Ohio.
2: Michael what will you say has been the effect on the community on the local community of Moraine? Uh, I mean as I mentioned a lot of folks that I talked to said they thought it was a good thing that uh, the Chinese were coming in and investing in that plant but you know from time to time, I did run into people and said, hey, look, sure sure. look back wistfully on those, on those well-paying uh, uh, GM jobs with the defined benefit pension plans. I mean, wh- wh- what would you say the overall effect has been?
3: I, I think the overall effect has been positive from the standpoint that when we did the initial attraction, it was going to be a $200 million investment and about 800 jobs. And uh, after working with the chairman – and his staff and, and understanding the success that could happen here, the acquisition of a glass-making facility in Mount Zion, which is outside of Chicago in Illinois. and Illinois in that proximity, uh, really encouraged the chairman to take a look at both the uh, production for the new vehicle glass, but as well as the aftermarket. And that encouraged the second investment announcement uh, literally a year later. The first was in January of fourteen. The follow up was in January 15. And so, what ultimately has happened is we now have 2,000 folks that are employed in the facility. There's been $600 million pumped into it, and that investment continues to increase. Um, what we've seen, the overall impact on the community, is that, you know, Moraine took a hit that was well over 40% of our operating budget, and we've now been able to really kind of infuse some of those dollars. From this investment back into the community with capital improvements, uh, road infrastructure, and various things that are a benefit to both our corporate citizens and the folks who drive into the city every day, as well as our citizens who live here.
1: Well, that really sounds like it's been a net positive for the community. But, Mike, what about the political side of things? That anger over China really touched a vein not only in Ohio but across the country, uh, Trump won the state of Ohio by eight percentage points, which really was an unexpectedly large margin. Do, do you think that people in your area might have less anger toward China as a result of this investment by Fuyao?
3: You, you know, that's probably kind of hard to gauge. Um, I think a little more time would be needed to, to, to understand now. What I will say is that um, this investment, you, you know, kind of uh, is relatively new and even though it's substantial and one of the largest direct foreign investments in the country over the past 10 years, um, at the time I think that the entire presidential race and everything was ongoing, was I don't think there was enough exposure on this investment to where it was maybe as well known to the uh, national community and economy as it should have been. And I also think that um, Chairman Chow deserves a lot of credit in really initiating such a large investment that we believe, and from what we're hearing, is spurring other folks to take a look and other Chinese companies to take a look at investing here and realizing that they can be successful.
2: Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about what it's like to work with the Chinese as investors? I mean, you talked about Chairman Chow, I mean, I interviewed him uh, how different was the actual experience on the shop floor than what is perhaps depicted when people think about, you know, what Chinese investors are like?
3: I uh, I think first um my experience has been nothing but positive uh throughout the entire process. They were uh, very deliberate and understanding, but you know, you're looking at this uh Ginormous property with 300 acres and you know four million square feet, so they they really got down to the details to understand the the operational cost, uh, the utilities. You know we we brought brought a lot of partners in, and then uh, we had to work through the understanding of okay what can we do to be cost competitive on all aspects utilities and workforce to, to make this happen um as far as uh, you know on the on the workshop floor it's my understanding that um things over there they're ironing out you know the maybe some communication efforts and they're also you know in the middle of this monster development and and um uh, Uh, huge expenditure that there's kind of a learning curve as they're pushing forward. Um, You know, their commitment, the actual acquisition and closing of the property was in in May of 2014. We're almost at three years and they've invested, again, nearly $600 million. They are up and running. They're employing 2,000 people and uh you know the hope is that in twenty eighteen they will actually be turning a profit and in that process, you know there there there's been two additions uh of over two hundred thousand square feet that's been added, and uh there's also been the leasing of the remaining portion of the g m facility that was divided out, which uh, I think they're leasing about another two hundred and sixty thousand square feet there so yeah, I'd say there's been some growing pains in respect to um, understanding what they initially were going to need and where they are now. As far as, you know, a um, a labor on the manufacturing floor, I'm not really able to comment on that. I do know that interviews are held here often, and most people are very excited that they're here and uh, happy to to be an employee of, of Fuya.
1: One last question before we wrap up, Mike. Should uh, President Trump come and see this factory in Moraine? Have you invited him to come out there?
3: I What I can tell you is in October of last year, there was a grand opening. I know there were a lot of uh, Chinese dignitaries that were here, and there were a lot of folks from Washington, D.C. that were invited, and several of our congressmen also attended. Uh, I do not know at that time if whether President Obama or uh, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump were invited to that. Um what I would say is that if you want to showcase across the nation um, a beautiful direct foreign investment that has proven to be tremendously successful and is continuing to grow, I think, I think anybody um, that would like to see that replicated across the country should come and take a look.
1: And that train whistle sounds like it's uh, time to wrap up here. Mike, yeah. thanks so much for taking the time to uh, speak with us today. You're welcome. Now for some broader perspective, let's go to Susan Helper. She has been an economics professor at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland for 20 years and also recently served as chief economist at the U.S. Commerce Department. Her research has focused on how to revitalize U.S. manufacturing. Sue, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Now, we've been talking about the Fuyao glass factory in Moraine and hearing the story about that. How would you sum up the bigger picture with manufacturing in Ohio and across the United States in recent years?
4: So across the U.S., um, we've seen since between about 1960 and about 2000, um, there were between 15 and 17 million manufacturing jobs and just sort of fluctuated regularly with the business cycle. Starting in 2000, there was this historic decline. We lost 30% of manufacturing jobs between 2000 and 2010. And then about 800,000 of those uh, came back or have come back since uh, 2000 to 2015. And then it's been kind of stable since then. And Ohio is part of that picture there's been a general move of manufacturing both out of cities and out of the north and so existing cities manufacturing heavy cities like cleveland and dayton and toledo have been hurt a lot Um, the suburbs less so of those cities Uh, But overall, I think the manufacturing employment in Ohio has been uh, slightly worse than those national trends that I've stated.
1: So, Sue, when you talk about the decline of those manufacturing jobs, both in Ohio and across the nation, how much of a villain has China been in that decline?
4: Well, this is quite a contentious uh, topic. I think the, the best research has been done by uh, David Otter of MIT and colleagues Gordon Hansen and David Dorn, and they found um, about 25% of this decline that I mentioned in manufacturing overall can be attributed to the rise of China. There's a couple other studies that find, using a different method that find a similar uh, decline. There's, these studies have been challenged, but, but I think that, the, that it's the Otter, and Hanson is still the gold standard. So it's, it's a significant part of the, the decline is due to China.
2: Sue, so what do you make of the argument uh, that uh, President Trump has made uh, as president on the campaign trail that uh, he can bring the jobs back to America? Uh, based on your understanding of how the manufacturing sector works, the history of the sector— how realistic is that?
4: So I think that jobs could be brought back. Uh, I'm not sure that any of the policies that Trump has announced so far in his administration you know, would be sufficient to do that. But those are two very different questions one of the things so so 800,000 jobs manufacturing jobs came back to the US between 2000 and 2015 and there was some analysis done by the White House Council of Economic Advisers at that time that showed that a lot of that was because of a structural change in the way companies thought about manufacturing in the US partly as a result of government programs, partly as a result of changes abroad, and partly as a result of companies doing a better job of understanding their own costs. Um, so one of the things that companies measure really well is their direct cost of factory labor, and that's the one cost that falls when you go to a company, uh, country like China. Uh, lots of other costs rise, but they rise in ways that are really hard to capture in existing accounting systems. You know, So you may take longer to debug part because you're talking to somebody in a different time zone and a different language. Um, your engineers travel there and then they lose a bunch of time both there and on the way back due to jet lag. Uh, you have a lot longer lead time. Um, these are things that have been very hard to value, and, and uh, increasingly, companies are understanding that those costs are, are actually quite high, and then the costs that they do measure are also rising, so particularly uh, wages in China are rising. Um, and so uh, yeah, there's a bunch of factors that are causing companies to come back, and, and then I think under Obama, there were some policies that, that helped with that, so creating of programs that facilitate the creation and introduction of new manufacturing technologies that help train uh, skilled manufacturing workers, uh, et cetera.
1: Now, you mentioned that there were 800,000 manufacturing jobs that came back. Can we get to a point where you restore the many millions that have been lost over the last 20 years? Is that even possible? It seems to be what uh, President Trump wants. And how much of a role could Chinese investment, such as The uh, Fuyao glass investment, uh, how much can that play a role in boosting these manufacturing jobs within the borders of the United States?
4: So, yeah, so I think it's unrealistic to bring back, uh, you know, 5 million jobs. And I guess I occupy somewhat of an odd space in this debate. You know, it seems like the the polls are either zero jobs can be brought back um, because it's changed, uh, or you know they can all come back. And I, you know, I think that some can come back. I mean, so if you think about a country like Germany, uh, wages are higher than they are in the U.S., and they have 20 percent of their GDP in manufacturing. We have uh, about 12. So you know, let's say we i don't think it's would be a stretch with good policy to say we could get you know fifteen to eighteen percent of our g d p in manufacturing um and that would you know raise the percentage of employment so manufacturing is more productive on average, so it's about nine percent of employment is in manufacturing, so you know maybe we get to twelve percent of employment or something in manufacturing that's uh that's a few million jobs
1: more than more than nothing. <laughs>
4: More than nothing, um I guess I also you know care about the kind of jobs that we bring back, and dangerous low wage jobs that don't have much of a career path you know i'm I don't see a reason to kind of prioritize those jobs in whatever sector they're in. you know the reason that I'm interested in bringing back manufacturing jobs is that on average manufacturing jobs uh, more, have a career path for people of a variety of educational backgrounds, uh, tend to be associated with innovation. Um, But if the manufacturing jobs in question don't do those things, then, you know, I I personally am less interested in policy that brings them back.
2: So, Sue, what do you think the American Rust Belt is going to look like in 15 to 20 years? Kind of describe to us what you think it's going to look like. And can you also weave in how you see China fitting into that equation?
4: So I guess I see, you know, two paths—a <laughs> good path and a bad path—and to some extent, you know, you could see mixes. But to some extent, you know, they are uh, trajectories, and with uh, their own virtuous and vicious cycles. Um, so I think the the positive path is, well, to step back. I think the issues with American manufacturing have been that uh, you know we're kind of stuck in the middle. We're not. Innovative, as innovative as Germany, and we're not as uh, low wage as Mexico or China. And you know, I personally would love to see us move in a Germany direction. Um, obviously, not imitating Germany, but but um, adopting some of the things that seem appropriate and, and giving them an American twist. And you know, what could, that could mean is there's a lot of new technologies that are that are possible. So things like robotics, things like uh, additive manufacturing. Uh, things like uh, what's called Industry 4.0, where you have a, add a lot more data into manufacturing. Um, and this, you know, makes it possible one way of adopting all this technology is a way that complements workers. And so then workers have access to the data these sensors are providing, and they can themselves make tweaks to the production process. And so then you get um, workers that are extremely productive, and they're, you know, tied in both Detail, with detailed knowledge to the shop floor, but also have an understanding of what they're doing. The principles they can be promoted to be supervisors or go on and get further education and to say becoming engineers. Um, so this is not this is somewhat like the path of a, a Siemens plant that I visited in North Carolina, where they they basically invest a couple hundred thousand dollars in an apprentice. Uh, and these people, when they complete the apprenticeship, they're making about sixty thousand dollars a year. Um so these are, you know, good jobs. They have the option to go on and get further schooling, become uh degreed engineers. So that's, you know, I think a path that would be great for individual workers, be great for the economies in which they're employed. I think there's another path, which is um, you know, the US still has a lot of population density, it uh Uh, is an attractive market Um, as wages rise abroad in countries like China and Vietnam and Mexico, as shipping costs rise, uh, it becomes attractive to bring assembly of heavy stuff back to the U.S. And uh, typically those jobs aren't done in a particularly skilled way. Uh, you're just kind of snapping stuff together. Um, companies try to do it very quickly and without a lot of training, and you know, pay people eight to ten to twelve dollars an hour. Uh, that's another path.
1: <laughs> well, let's talk. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, that is the I think the key point. The Fuyao glass plant as. Uh, you know, as the local official told us, it's it's brought jobs back. It's been an it's been a net positive for the local economy there. You know, clearly, um, you know, bringing a dead General Motors plant back to life is something that uh, that that can help the community. But are those the kinds of jobs? Is this is this investment by a big Chinese company a you know really a net positive for the economy and workers, or is it? Or or is it not the kind of manufacturing that would really uh, help the economy?
4: You know, it's got elements of both. So it's paying, you know, $12 an hour, which is above the Ohio minimum wage or the federal minimum wage. Um, on the other hand, I guess I don't understand, you know, so much about the path for advancement, we know that it's been a pretty dangerous plant. That you know, OSHA doesn't go after a lot of plants, and the fact they've had repeated investigations and paid a couple hundred thousand dollars in fines—that's again not typical. Uh, OSHA's finding power is quite low. So I think that we need to push harder uh, on these, well, on all employers. Um, I think that there are attractions. You know, I think Chinese companies have discovered, as American companies have, that it's if you want to supply the U.S. market, there's a lot of advantages to doing it from the U.S. And you can imagine uh, even that plant adopting different kinds of production recipes, where you have more productive workers who are well trained, uh, and um, uh, able to innovate and able to sell higher-end products. So I would you know, push, if, particularly before giving that company any more incentives to expand, that, that they, uh, you know, at, at a minimum, fully correct these safety violations. I know they've invested uh, several million dollars in doing so. Uh, is that enough? I, I don't know. And then push, you know, let's create a career path. Let's figure out, you know, involving workers in uh, innovation. And in debugging of new processes is a way to both justify higher wages and benefit the company.
2: So, Sue, uh, just to wrap up, what would you say is kind of the big picture here for Chinese investment in the U.S. economy, in particular the manufacturing sector? If I'm a worker in Moraine, Ohio at the moment— how optimistic should I be about these types of investments,
1: especially with uh, with President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping about to uh, meet now
2: so I think there's gonna
4: there's reasons for the Chinese to want to invest in the us um, you know it's an attractive market and um, it's going to be attractive for them to supply it from the us and I think it's incumbent upon policymakers to make sure that those are good jobs and that the Chinese adapt to the characteristics of the American workforce, which is uh, more educated than perhaps the workforce that they've been exposed to in China, and uh, that they you know, contribute to educating that workforce. And you know, I think there's a potential for a mutually beneficial relationship, and uh, maybe pushing a little harder on both the safety and the wage questions um, can, can do that. Um, and I think we've, you know, we've seen a few Chinese companies that, that have actually moved in that direction.
1: All right. Well, we'll see how that plays out. And uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Helper. So, Andrew, what's your takeaway from all this? What, what, did, what did we learn uh, that, that you didn't pick up during your uh, reporting trip out there?
2: Well, what I heard is that uh, these towns like Moraine, Ohio, they want the capital. And China has deep pockets and it has lots of capital. So it's a natural relationship. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. What I took away from uh, Sue at Case Western was that what's good for companies and what's good for a town's revenue base is not necessarily good for the American worker.
1: Yeah, Andrew, it's really remarkable. I, I mean, if we could see President Trump go out there, uh, for example, and visit that plant and get a different perspective from somebody who talked so much during the campaign about China raping, uh, the, raping this country, uh, all the unfair trade practices, and so on and so forth. I mean, he softened some of that rhetoric since he became president. He's meeting with President Xi Jinping very shortly. But, you know, there's definitely more wrinkles in this relationship between uh, the two countries than most people know about.
2: Yeah, I think he would see that, that those, some of those jobs have come back. Uh, but I think the other thing he'll see is on that assembly line, there's a heck of a lot more automation than there used to be. There's a lot of robots putting together those windshields. So bringing jobs back is not as simple as just moving pieces around on a map. When you bring jobs back over the border, sometimes those jobs change. So I think that the picture he would see would be perhaps a lot more complicated than the one he has conveyed.
1: But bringing those jobs back could definitely use some help from China, at least as we've seen from this investment for
2: sure, right? (laughs) China is not uh, simply a villain, that's for sure, in this story.
1: All right. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Scott Landman. And Andrew, you are at A-M-A-Y-E-D-A. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. And the head of Bloomberg podcast is Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
0: The countdown has begun.